Welcome to another episode of the WBT, Wrath Bearing Trees podcast. I'll be your host for this episode, Adrian Bonnenberger. Today, I'm here with Wes Morgan, a journalist with credits all over, most recently with Politico. Wes has written a book. At the moment, I think it's fair to call it the book about Afghanistan's Pesh Valley over the last 20 years or so, called The Hardest Place, The American Military Adrift in Afghanistan's Pesh Valley. It's deeply reported from all sides, written with sensitivity and nuance, and sets a very high bar for future books aiming to interrogate a particular corner of the war in Afghanistan. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Adrian. I'm excited to chat with you about it. So the first and easiest question I have for you is, when did you decide to write this book? When did you start writing it? Yeah, so I got the, I got the deal to write it in 2012. Um, I had just come off of um, my first jo job out of college was working for a then New York Times reporter named Michael Gordon um, as his research assistant on a big book about the war in Iraq. Um, so just as that book was coming out and I was trying to figure out what to do next, um, you know, I had applied for a, for a job with a newspaper uh, at, at their cobble bureau and didn't get it. But I had this idea that um, I, I had spent some time in Afghanistan already as a freelancer in 2009 and 2010. And on one of those trips in 2010, I had gone to the Pesh Valley and, for an embed with a, a particular 101st Airborne Division battalion. And it just kind of got me hooked on the place. I had gone on to write a senior thesis about what at the time seemed like sort of a, the wrapped up US involvement in the Pesh Valley because they actually, US forces pulled out of the Pesh in 2011 as I was preparing to graduate and turn in this senior thesis. Then I had kind of kept an eye on the place out of the corner of my eye as U.S. forces had gone back in, kind of been sucked back into the place as the Afghan National Army collapsed. So I thought, okay, look, the story is going on longer. There are kind of more, more chapters to it. Um, I'm going to pitch a book uh, basically zooming in on one place and then trying to tell the story of the war through the, through the lens of that place. That was almost 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I've seen you talk about this online. What was the depth of reporting the book, the thing that took so long? I mean, do you think that a book that's well reported, like by definition, will take a long time, or were there other considerations? Well, a few things took a long time. One was kind of the more I delved into it, I actually I was able to develop better and different kinds of sources than I initially expected that I would. When, when I pitched the book, um, I really was thinking of it as just a kind of a story about a series of infantry battalions uh, with, you know, some special operations stuff thrown in to the degree that I could get it. But then once I started digging into it, it turned out, you know, I, yeah, I was able to get the stories of those infantry battalions and, and, and actually a lot of stuff about the special operations forces, but that there were these whole other aspects of it, too. I mean, there's sort of the, the CIA's involvement in this whole story. Was something I didn't think I would get sourcing on, but I did as time went on, uh, and and I was able to get a lot more, um, a lot of Afghan perspectives that I wasn't counting on getting initially. So that kind of wound up, you know, changing my account, making me able to flesh out accounts that had been a little more just from the U.S. side before. Another factor was just that the story kept going. Ground forces pulled out of the patch. Last U.S. you know advisors on the ground left there in 2013. But you know, as I was writing, I mean, there was this very active drone war run by the run by the 75th Ranger Regiment going on that I just initially didn't think I was going to be able to get a whole lot about it. But again, as, as this kind of went along, I actually threw through the kinds of sources I was developing just in writing about the regular infantry battalions. You know, you guys switch back and forth between Ranger Regiment and the regular infantry units. 
Um, so I actually was able to get quite a bit of insight into that JSOC drone campaign, which, you know, just kept going. I mean, they, they didn't get kind of their main target, a guy named Farouk Al-Qahtani, until late 2016. And then by that point, you're kind of like, well, the Trump administration's coming in, something new might happen. And U.S. forces do indeed wind up going back up to Kunar um, yet again in 2018, 2019. I mean, there were, there were rangers running, running raids there uh, as recently as, as early 2020. So I'm, I'm very glad that I was able to take the time that I did. It definitely felt very frustrating at times along the way. I just thought I just want to be able to have this done. It feels like a better time now than it ever previously could have been for it to kind of have wrapped up. When you mentioned the target, you know, a, a big theme that occurs in the book over and over again is like, is almost the, the, the red herring of the target. It's, it's almost like the Pesh Valley in Afghanistan is a movie filled with red herrings and like, it's very difficult to get a sense of the plot. If there was a plot at any point, maybe it was <laughs> with bin Laden in the beginning. Like that right. seems like the, the thing that animates the most people, 9-11. Bin Laden goes through this place. He's there briefly, probably, as far as we yep. can tell, but then he's quickly gone, but the targets remain and the targets proliferate. The question becomes, you know, who were you chasing and how far down this sort of this insurgent hierarchy are you going to chase? Because as uh, a guy named Lauren Crow, who did two tours up in the patch, um, points out toward the end of the book, the patch is a place where there will always be dragons to slay. I mean, essentially, as long as there is somebody hiding in Afghanistan from the tools of US power, um, the mountains north of the patch in particular are like, that's a really good place to do it. So whether it's the Islamic State or Al Qaeda or the Taliban or Lashkar-e Taiba, you see this just endless rotation of militant groups that the military chases. And you know, at, at some points it's very constrained. It's, you know, we're, we're going after bin Laden or we're going after Farouk al-Qahtani, but because these guys are hard to find, um, the, ine the inevitable kind of shift, you know, mission creep that you see is, you know, to find Bin Laden or to find Farouk, uh, they look for anybody who's ever met Bin Laden or Farouk, and then they look for anybody who's ever met the guy who met him, and it, it, it becomes anybody who's ever met an Arab up there, you know, just sort of where, where you draw that line is a, is a story that um, actually is uh, kind of something that the Ob Obama administration has to grapple with at a fairly high level during the course of Operation Haymaker in 2014, 2015, 2016 as it thinks about whether to leave or not, or whether to extend beyond its, its promised end date, because they've got this, this guy up there, nobody really knows exactly what he's up to, um, nor do they expect to actually be able to find and kill him, although they eventually do at the end of 2016. Um, but so the name of the game becomes keeping a lid on him by killing as many people around him as you can. And, you know, depending on the scale of your air campaign to do that, um, that's, really something that you that, that's going to affect your you know how long you keep boots on the ground in Afghanistan because these guys operate out of places like Bagram and Jalalabad of where all the drones fly out of. So if the Pesh and that region that area uh, and Nuristan are the places that people go to to hide in Afghanistan the book is such a great um it's such a great example of the thing itself because this is where people go to hide. But if you talk to an average American on the street, you know, you say, what do you think the significance of Afghanistan is? They'll probably say that's the place that the Taliban go, like that's the place that bad guys go to hide. But actually what they're talking about isn't Kabul, it isn't Mazari Sharif, it's the Pesh Valley. It's like, that's the place where the thing 
and as it turns out with all of our technology and our human um, and we, you know whatever human resources we still have it's still incredibly difficult to find the people that we want to find um, to this day even uh, which it is. is i mean and it's um in part because uh, you know the, the terrain of the valley is is just so physically difficult. Um, it makes it you know hard to land helicopters, hard to hard to operate troops, how to keep hard to keep bases that informants can come into. But that same terrain, it also has kind of driven the shape of the the human landscape up there. Um, you know, over the past several hundred years, basically, as as Pashtuns moved into uh, what's now Kunar Province, they drove farther up into the mountains. Existing people may or may not be indigenous people. Nobody really knows whether they themselves were driving somebody else higher into the mountains, uh, up into these very remote communities um, where they were essentially sort of seeking refuge from the the arm of the state that was trying to uh, that, that was trying to encompass them. So almost just the, the people who live up there by nature are um, they have languages that are you know small remnant languages that only isolated pockets exist of. Um, which is very makes makes you know surveilling them very difficult from either a human intelligence or signals intelligence perspective. It's also, I mean, it's in some ways a very unique part of Afghanistan because of that terrain, because of that, uh, because of that, you know, uh, ethnic and ethnolinguistic landscape. Um, but I mean, as you say, it kind of um, it, for for in in many ways this unique place, which is very unlike many other parts of Afghanistan kind of became a stand-in for Afghanistan um, in American media and popular culture um, at the height of the war there in 2007, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. I think in part because that's just the vividness of the terrain, the ferocity of the fighting at a time when there were not that many troops there in 2007, 2008, and then in 2008, 2009, as media attention started to focus back on Afghanistan uh, after having been diverted by the Iraq surge. The Korengal Valley, in particular, which is one of the tributaries of the Petch, um, really it becomes this kind of byword for Afghanistan, and you see it in popular culture all the time. Um, e even now, I mean, you see when an Afghan place name is needed, you see Kunar or Korengal uh, being the ones used. Even though these are, of course, these are very tiny slices of the country, and only a tiny slice of the Americans who fought in Afghanistan uh, ever set foot in them. That's right. I, uh, so listeners will know that I uh, may know that my unit, the uh, 173rd Airborne Brigade, was uh, one of these units that you cover, which deployed there. Um, specifically, uh, the, the, the brigade, uh, my brigade deployed there uh, from 2007 to 2008. But I was one of these soldiers or officers who never set foot there. It was the 2nd Battalion and I was in the 1st Battalion. So I was aware of, of what was happening there at the time. And, and it was a very uh, mythologized deployment, heavily mythologized. But as you describe in the book, and as was covered at the time, it's because exceptional things were happening there, um, extraordinary things. Just to address another uh, point, one of the points that you made about the uh, ethno-linguistic landscape, one of the great details that you have in the book is, um, is I don't remember if it was Waigali, but somebody from one of the tribes, uh, the, or s some of the tribe, I guess one of the tribes is used by the Pakistani military as their kind of like Navajo code talkers. Yeah, yeah, so this is an interesting story and this gets back to, I mean, the degree to which this terrain just is a natural refuge. Um, so, I mean, before the US military showed up there hunting Al-Qaeda, Lashkar-e Taiba, the Pakistani militant group that was kind of born out of the conflict in Kashmir, uh, it used to have its, a lot of its training camps uh, up in, in Nuristan. 
um, north of the Petch, and it would recruit heavily from the, the Nuristani population in the Weigal Valley and other valleys like that. And indeed, yeah, this was, um, uh, Kunari uh, told this to me, that sometimes uh, sort of as they fought along the line of control in Kashmir, Lashkari Taiba would use Waigali speakers that other other speakers of other Nuristani languages um, as the equivalent of Navajo code talkers because they knew you know Indian forces are not going to have a Waigali interpreter who can make sense of this on their signals intelligence. It's such a distant place, and there's one thing. Um, I, so I wanted to read a passage, or actually, if, if do you have a copy of your book nearby? Yeah, sure. Let me pull it up. If you wouldn't mind, why don't you read? Um, yeah, I'd love to. It's the bottom of 226 and the top of 227. It's essentially, um, it's when Matt Ferrara's platoon is getting ready to go back to this, um, to the ranch house, this, this place that they've left. And they're kind of, this gives you a sense of, you know, so, so a unit has, essentially been rescued from a, a position of tactical, like just impossibility. Like there's no way to hang on there. They're just uh, at the far end of a tiny valley, which is itself inaccessible. And now they have to go back. Um, so if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. And just to kind of set the context a little more, I mean, th this platoon has been up at this unbelievably remote outpost called the Ranch House outside the town of Arantz. They fought a big battle there, uh, in which Matt Ferrara, the platoon leader, um, kind of miraculously got his platoon through unscathed without anybody being killed, even though the enemy actually did get inside the wire. I mean, they penetrated the outpost. And at the beginning of October of 2007, finally, they were able to burn the place down and fly away, um, you know, uh, depart, uh, depart the base. But so I'll, I'll pick up here. Then on October 2nd, the paratroopers set the ranch house base on fire and flew away. Chosen Company was not done with Iran's, however, nor Iran's with Chosen Company. First platoon got a month to decompress at Blessing. They ran Humvee patrols along the smooth pavement of the Petch Road, worked out and played video games at the FOB gym in their downtime, and spent an uneventful few days in the Shuriak during Operation Rock Avalanche. Then, in early November, Ferrara and his men headed up to, uh, to Bella, which is the next, the remaining base in the valley, to start a winter rotation in what was now the northernmost outpost in the Rock's corner of Afghanistan. The paratroopers had been at Bela for only a few days when a message arrived from Arantz. The elders wondered if Ferrara would come visit them now that he was back in their neck of the woods. Ever the good soldier diplomat, Ferrara jumped at the chance. His soldiers were not so happy. They just left Arantz after killing an unknown number of Arantzis in a pitched battle. Specialist Kyle White, Ferrara's radio man, didn't trust the townspeople's intentions. When Ferrara announced they would be taking the elders up on the invitation, the 20-year-old 20 paratrooper from Seattle was so anxious he was nauseated. He wasn't alone. There were guys who were sick, throwing up from nerves, because you had this feeling in your stomach like something bad was going to happen, White remembered a few hours before the return to Iran's patrol headed out after dark on November 8th. I have to say, reading this section like it gave me chills the first time I read it. And, and this book is, is uh, I think it's notable for, for many moments like this, um, but I... I I remembered, I remembered that feeling of of being just at the at the edge of the world and knowing that it's just you going into this you know really dangerous situation, probably for no good reason. And uh, yeah, thanks for reading that. I I think you know this is I've I've been telling everybody I can about this book. I'm very excited about it, not just because of um, 
the information in it. You know, first and foremost, of course, the information and the um, the quality of reporting, but also it's 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 very well written, and you manage to convey that sense of isolation. You've just got a great eye for those moments that that underline it. That here are these. It's a platoon. It's like a handful of people. They just escaped, and like you said, this this the you characterize this battle so well. The Battle of the Ranch House. I mean, I heard about it. It's a famous battle, that miraculously, and now they're supposed to go back, and it's just heartbreaking. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, reconstructing these events. I mean, I'm thinking about the Ranch House battle, this November 9th, the Ranz ambush. Um, you know, I, I spent a fair amount of time in Afghanistan. I went up to the Pesh starting in 2010. But I never was able to get near Iran. So, you know, parts of the book are based on my firsthand experiences in Afghanistan. I, uh, you know, I made trips to the patch in 2010, 2013, et cetera. Uh, but most of the book is not. Most of the book is about things that I didn't see or experience. It's about the, the sights and experiences of others, people I was interviewing, and events that I'm trying to reconstruct from, from the recollections of people that I interview, from documents, and so on. Um, but one of the things that I think was a real kind of um, a boon to be writing about these events um, was the amount of other kinds of documentary evidence that there is, not necessarily of the events themselves, although in some cases there are. I mean, some cases you really have the firefight itself, you know, the audio from it or something like that. Um, but you often have um, just kind of, you know, YouTube videos, things like that, that are related to the event itself, videos that soldiers took as they were preparing to go out before a battle, um, things that didn't seem important at the time but became important in hindsight. And there are a couple of these things actually related to the, the Battle of the Battle of Arantz on November 9th, 2007, which is what this patrol is kind of walking into, right? You know, I have, I have some very vivid, you know, kind of pictures in my head of things that I didn't really see but that were described to me. For instance, there's um, you know, some of the one of the helicopter pilots involved in looking for the bodies uh, on the night of November 9th painted this really vivid portrait um, in his description of seeing these little uh, infrared lights kind of tumbling down the stream and realizing that it was it was the helmets of, of soldiers who had been who had been killed and wounded and the helmets just alone were sort of tumbling down this this mountain stream, which is a, a really haunting image. I mean, and one that I think about a lot. But there's also video um, actually from the helicopter recovery mission that the 82nd Airborne Division, which had the, was in charge of you know, Eastern Afghanistan at the time, its headquarters, um, not too long after the battle, they posted this, uh, this really, um, I mean, haunting, kind of disturbing video that just shows, it shows that two, two medevac helicopters engaged in the hoist operations, recovering bodies. Um, and you actually see them kind of lifting the bodies up. Um, and in kind of a weird intersection with the way you know, modern war blends with the popular culture about modern war. Uh, they actually, they set this video when they, when they uploaded it to YouTube, they set it to a track from the soundtrack of Black Hawk Down. There's this cello heavy soundtrack, which I, in fact, um, you know, they, they, they actually would play this very same soundtrack at the memorial ceremonies at Fob Blessing uh, when the 101st Airborne Battalion that I visited a couple of years later was there. And Black Hawk Down is a, you know, a, a movie that is, very much in the minds of a generation of like young soldiers, even though it's not their war. Not sure how I got to that, but it's, I, I think it was an interesting, uh, you know, an interesting phenomenon. I've seen people write about, or about angles of that, the, the, the feedback loop by which war movie and video game, but more war movie culture infiltrated military culture in the early mid two and mid probably really the mid late 2000s yeah 
and then sort of became part of the military and has gone back into the mainstream from the military with this new kind of patina of, um, of credibility. That's, you see, that's you see this. Um, you see this in the Pesh also, and because the war lasted so long there, I mean, there's this event that happens in 2005 that's pretty infamous: Operation Red Wings, when uh, you know a, a whole group of uh, Navy SEALs and, and Army Special Operations aviators are killed in this tragic, disastrous event on the side of the mountain in the Korangal. Um, and the one SEAL who survives writes a well, a, a, a ghostwriter writes with him a somewhat embellished book depicting the, the events. This, the surviving SEALs uh, memoir, his book gets turned into a movie. Eventually, by the time you get to 2010, 2011, soldiers deploying to the patch, actually they've read Lone Survivor, the, the Navy SEALs account of Operation Red Wings, and they have seen uh, Sebastian Younger and Tim Hetherington's documentary um, War or Restrepo uh, about, about a previous unit in the Korangal, the 173rd. So there's kind of, they've already absorbed popular culture about the place that they're going to fight, um, which I think is, you know, a, a strange thing. And then, you know, eventually you get, you get Lone Survivor, the movie, which is sort of this big blockbuster, which adds to it. I, there's a funny parallel to, on the Taliban side, the, the role that, that video propaganda has in the war. I mean, I think, you know, Lone Survivor, the movie is, is essentially a, a, you know, an Afghanistan version of John Wayne's The Green Berets, right? In, in kind of the tone and, and, and the, the place that it fits into our veneration of special operations forces. In a way, similarly, the Taliban uh, would use uh, video that they produced uh, during ambushes and attacks and helicopter shootdowns in, in Kunar and Nuristan uh, as kind of a currency to, you know, to, this would be recorded as evidence of attacks to make sure that you got your, you know, you got your money for your, for your trip that you'd made to Kunar or whatever. But then it also would be used for, for, for jihadi propaganda because, I mean, I think for some of the same reasons that, that footage uh, from the Korangal and the Pesh was so striking and played so well in Western media, it's just such, a, it's such an incredibly beautiful and stark place that it just, I mean, it just looks good on, looks good on film. So it, it, you know, it, again, it probably takes an outsized importance on, on the Taliban side in their media as well. Well, and of course for them, it's also a war of defense to a certain extent. It's, um, or at least as it's being shown to people in that area, it's being shown as you know the defeat of the people who are coming in here and kind of messing things up. Whereas for us, it's being shown, I guess as a morale booster mostly to people who would be inclined to join the combat branches of the military or the military itself. But as you said, you know, when you're in the military, you're watching things like, Lone Survivor or American Sniper. American Sniper, of course, a, a, I think a pretty, maybe even a more successful movie than Lone Survivor yeah. or Black Hawk Down or, but you know, Lone Survivor specifically, when I was reading your book, the, the, the last time that's the, that particular section and other sections when you're talking about Red Wings, the last time that I had felt that, felt that feeling, you know, that feeling of isolation and danger, like, you're, you're far away and you're in imminent danger of being surrounded and, and, and killed uh, was when I watched Lone Survivor. And it wasn't even the parts of Lone Survivor where like the Taliban were, you know, overwhelming them in, again, in the book and in the movie, it's like 200 in real life naval intelligence, I think put the number at somewhere between 10 and 25. 
you know, it, which by the way, you know, if, if there are four of you and you're fighting against 10 people in their backyard uh, who have been hiking up and down these mountains your entire life, there's no dishonor in being defeated by 10. But of course, in the movie version, it's 200 uh, and there's just waves of them, got it. Uh, but, but that it was just, it was the landscape and that feeling of, uh, of again, of just being all the way out at the end. And your, your book recreates that. And I just uh, was very impressed because of that. Um, and I think too, that like, I, I wish there was some way to communicate that to soldiers. Like when you're in that outpost at the end of civilization, like when you're watching the video of it, of like people are shooting at you and you're shooting back at them, you've got the machine gun and like, here come the helicopters. That's just one moment. Most of the time you're feeling when you're in an outpost on the edge of civilization is like, if people come over the wall, we're probably going to die or certainly get hurt very badly. And, uh, and the feeling for the Taliban on the attack, you know, with the Taliban propaganda videos is probably like, we have a chance to, you know, make a strong martyr attack on the invaders. Um, yeah, it's interesting you mentioned kind of that, the feeling. I mean, there's a, um, a guy who appears in the book, now a four-star general, but a lieutenant colonel at the time named Christopher Cavoli. Uh, and, and something that he told me once that I don't think wound, you know, wound up making it into the book was he, he described, um, he was describing just the life of his soldiers, 10th Mountain Division soldiers um, up, in, up in the Patch and its tributaries in 2006 and 2007. And, and the description that he gave that was so, that has stuck with me was not one of the combat, but it was about the moments in between the combat. Uh, and he, he made the analogy to, um, to being out on the ocean in a little tiny boat and just not knowing what's beneath you and when it might and when it might reach up he said basically that that's how my soldiers lived every day and especially every night it's so difficult i think it's almost unimaginable to an american that like what what that what that means you know yeah. like like if you if, if, if you're not there because we have helicopters and c-130s and ac-130 gunships and, uh, and you can get food and you can get water and like a bomb is going to come and help you out. Uh, but, but when you're there, it's like, you don't, it's, it's, it, it's 20 minutes or 30 minutes until they come. And so you really, right. it doesn't matter that you have all of the strength behind you. Um, exactly. And that's a dynamic that you see change over the course of the war too. I mean, by 2010, 2011, yeah, U.S. troops, they're out there driving around in MRAPs. Um, they have Kiowa helicopters, you know, overhead anytime they go out. Um, they have drones, all this stuff. Um, and, you know, there's some stuff that takes a little longer to show up, like fighter jets and Apaches. But if you fast, if you, you know, rewind just a couple of years, I mean, to the period when the 10th Mountain guys were setting up these outposts in 2006, 2007, a lot of that just wasn't there. Um, a lot of the sort of the high tech stuff that we associate with this war, that stuff was all in Iraq um, for, the, for the surge in Iraq. Um, and Afghanistan was an afterthought. I mean, there would be two Apaches, you know, at any given time flying over this four province region, you know, Kunar, Nuristan, Lagman, Nangarhar, it's the size of New Jersey. And, you know, the, the aerial QR quick reaction force that is that is available to all the troops in all those four provinces is these two Apaches. Whereas meanwhile, during the Battle of Sadr City in, in the spring of 2008 in Baghdad, I mean, you've got, you know, like eight Apaches flying over this little this dense little slum at, a, at any given time. Uh, one, one example that I thought was kind of striking about this you know, just how out there you would be. There, there's a guy named Ray McPadden who appears briefly in the book, who was a, um, he was a 10th Mountain platoon leader in the Wadapur and the Korangal. He was wounded doing that. And he, late, he later came back to Kunar 
as a second ranger battalion platoon leader and he actually he went on to write a novel based on his experiences called when the whole mountain burned uh, and, and he has a memoir of his uh, of his time in service coming out uh, pretty soon here as well a uh, really interesting guy um but he he described to me um when he when he came back to kunar in like 2009 as a, a ranger company executive officer and he was working for the seal team six guys at jalalabad who had responsibility for kind of doing night raids up into up into the mountains in kunar and nuristan um, he, he describes this episode where there was a target in this place, Sangar, up above the Waterpur Valley, and, and the SEALs say, oh, we're, we're not going there. I mean, basically, Task Force East, these SEAL Team 6 guys say, we'll go there if we've got a platoon of Rangers with us and two AC-130s. And uh, to Ray McPadden, this is just kind of, it's funny, because in 2006, you know, he, he was wounded up there in a firefight where he and his guys had, had driven in pickup trucks to this place. You know, and that was actually something that they did kind of on the reg um, was was drive in pickup trucks or hike or go in ATVs um, to these kinds of places that within a few years uh, are places that organizations that have t- the technology and the firepower won't go without the technology and the firepower. That's a, a great point and gets to something that I know that coin or counterinsurgency doctrine is widely derided now and perhaps deservedly so. The few of the people that I knew or saw ever, ever really took it very seriously. They most of the time, at, you know, at the time thought it was bullshit. But I thought, you know, there were some really interesting and insightful components of it. One of them being, you know, the, the, the more you protect yourself from the enemy, the further you get from the population and the more vulnerable you become. It's one of these, you know, essential paradoxes. And I thought about that with, um, yeah, with your, your characterization of that evolution from guys bouncing up uh, the trail in pickup trucks um, from that to, you know, uh, battalion size Humvee or MRAP uh, or MATV convoys across, you know, which couldn't even get in some cases to, you just couldn't go up the valleys anymore because there was no road to support that. Um, there was no place for the Humvees. They were just too big, even a Humvee, let alone these other, you know, much more, uh, much larger vehicles. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit too about just getting back to the the, the theme of of being alone. You know, so uh, you know the last units that were at the like the the, the zenith of the U.S. Um, footprint in Afghanistan in in the Pesh Valley were the 173rd because they were pushed all the way out. They pushed out all to the plate. They pushed out to the point that the 10th mountain had pushed out, but they were they were protecting more than the 10th mountain had. And so they were, without even knowing it, sort of incurring more risks. Um, and then they start shrinking again until the Afghans start replacing them. And so the, the you see that kind of like, we're way out, we're overextended with the Americans last with the 173rd, then they begin to shrink their presence to a more defensible sort of footprint. And then you see it again, when the Afghans are there and they're sort of left to their own devices, I'd never seen an English language account of an Afghan unit's experience reported out to the detail that you ha- you give in this book. And I, you know, so I, I wanted to mention that as well. That like this is something that you're not just reading like, oh, look, it's the it's a parade of American officers and soldiers, and you know, thank you for your service, that type of thing, which personally is always, I find very gratifying and it's nice to read about, but this is about the Afghans too. And once again, the, an Afghan Kandak, a battalion size element 
is out there. They're, they take over, I think, Blessing, one of the main camps, and they're just sort of what happens is just so interesting. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in the spring of 2011, the 101st Airborne uh, pulls out of most of the Pesh bases, all except the one that is nearest to the, to the Valley Mount, and they turn them over to the Afghan National Army. And essentially, the reason they turn them over to the Afghan National Army is because there has been a disconnect between the way the Americans think about the patch and its significance and the way the Afghan government thinks about the patch and its significance, where for a couple of years now, the American military has basically been fed up with the patch. It's too dangerous. It, it expends too many resources. They just want to wash their hands of the place. For a couple of years, the U.S. military has been increasingly fed up with the patch. It, it's, it's expensive uh, in terms of lives, in terms of you know, predator hours, helicopter blade hours, every kind of way that you can think of, it's expensive and a resource suck. So the military wants to wash its hands of the place. Um, and although it takes them a long time to kind of get all the approvals and line up all the resources to do it, finally they do. In early 2011, you know, General Petraeus at ISAF signs off on it, time to go. But the, this hasn't really been run up the Afghan flagpole. Uh, and, and these bases also contain Afghan troops, and it's the Afghan government that we're fighting for, basically. And the Afghan government at this point, Karzai himself says, no, well, we're not leaving this, the, the patch. You know, that's a place that's got a bunch of district centers and a lot of voters in it. We'll stay. Um, and it's kind of easy for the Afghan government to say that at that point, because the patch is not a place that they have fought hard and taken losses. There have been, there have been Afghan troops up there you know, co-located with the American troops, but the American troops have basically used them as auxiliaries, dragged them along, used them to knock on the door to the house, just kind of a check the box, kind of put an Afghan face on it kind of thing for their operations. Uh, and, and these Afghan troops have been completely reliant on the Americans for every kind of, you know, logistical consideration that you could think of. But so the Afghan government says, no, we're staying. And then because of this the way that U.S. troops have just sort of used the Afghan troops as auxiliaries rather than really focusing on helping them, you know, be units that can exist on their own, this Afghan unit that gets left behind there is not able to exist on its own. So I went up and visited this Afghan unit a couple of years later. They, they were no longer in the patch, although I did go out into the patch and visit the, the unit that had replaced them in the patch, but they were in a different part of Kunar. So I went to Kunar to, uh, and, and spent some time with this, this Afghan battalion that had, that had in 2011 had been left holding the bag in the Pesh Valley at Fob Blessing. Um, and it had been quite the experience. I mean, they, they remembered it pretty well. Um, and it was kind of a, you know, at, at this base where I was interviewing these commanders, I had this minder. I had, there was this elderly Afghan National Army major who was sort of my escort, who did, clearly didn't relish the job and didn't want to be doing it. And he would get, I, I wasn't sure exactly what kind of instructions he had gotten from his, you know, higher public affairs headquarters. Um, but essentially when, uh, when these commanders and sergeants major and so on would talk about this experience and talk about you know how basically they had felt like abandoned by the americans and they hadn't been able to kind of make it on their own and hadn't been able to hack it he would get all agitated he would try and get them to at one point he said we're going to go back to we're going to go back to you know the colonel tomorrow and he's going to rec recant what he said um and you know i mean it doesn't matter to me i mean he's already said what he's going to say um but we, we go back to the colonel and to his credit he says no i, I stand by what i said um <laughs> Uh, and yeah, they, I mean, they described this very, um, very intense experience of being left out uh, at, at, at Forward Operating Base Blessing um, after the departure of the U.S. troops on whom they rely. Uh, and you see, uh, you see the battalion sort of try to figure out how it's going to survive. Um, and one of the, and essentially there are two majors in control of the battalion because there's no, there's actually no battalion commander. The battalion commander has deserted uh, in anticipation of the U.S. withdrawal. He doesn't want to be there for that. Um, so these two majors are in charge of this understrength battalion. 
one of these majors is kind of more on the the side of hey look you know we can we can hang on here maybe we can get the americans to come back something like that um and the other major is more on the side of it's us and the taliban out here now like we got to deal with them and and it, this this second major a guy named Dulfikar, he winds up actually being rolled up and arrested after um feeding intelligence to the taliban about american troops during one of their visits to blessing um, but the Afghan troops uh, who, who were left out there, I mean, a, a lot of them kind of didn't know which way their bread was buttered. I mean, they're receiving government pay, at least in theory, uh, when it can get to them. Um, but also they've got a, a, a battalion executive officer who they think might be about to sell the base to the Taliban. And so that was a really interesting um, story to reconstruct because it seemed like it could sort of provide a, a hint at things that could be going on in a lot of different places um, as U.S. troops departed. Uh, and, and Afghan troops kind of had to figure out what the what the new normal was going to look like. That's a, a, a huge blind spot, I think, when it comes to imagining U.S. foreign policy today, which is that most of the people who have any knowledge of Afghanistan tend to think of it in American terms, and they dedicate so much, you know, wattage to that, both to uh, the American vision of Afghanistan. And th that Afghan vision of Afghanistan, which is friendliest to the American vision of Afghanistan, which is probably that major who was following you around, that guy. Right. So that's the guy that people are talking to. It's like, oh, no, he's gonna, he didn't mean that. Um, but, but every, I'm sure, you know, met there, not every, I'm sure there are many ANP, Afghan National Police, oh. Afghan Border Police, and Afghan National Army units that have been left out in places like that uh, where they've had to negotiate to survive uh, or figure out, like you said, figure out which, which side of the, the, uh, the bread there, the butter goes on. I mean, there's also one thing that's, that's interesting to see over the course of the war, and I see it very clearly in Kunar, I'm sure it plays out in other, other parts of the country as well, um, is essentially there's this selection process by which the Americans decide which Afghans they're going to trust and which ones they're going to work with. And often uh, it, it comes down to things that you know, from the, in the moment on the American side are probably extremely important. Like, does the guy speak English? But that in retrospect are probably not really the things that you should have been looking at in, in choosing partners. There's um, a Kunari friend of mine who, who was very helpful in kind of reviewing the manuscript of the book and helping me get things right. Uh, and one of his insights was basically, he was like, look, every time that one of these American battalion commanders, uh, you know, talks about how, oh, he's got a, he's got a, uh, the government, the governor of Nuristan used to own a pizza place in Sacramento, and I can talk about football with him. Like those should be tells that he's not the guy you want to be dealing with, and that very often the things that we selected for as like, okay, these are things they're going to make this guy a practical partner um, should have been disqualifying things, right? Um, yeah. Because that those are often people who are not being going to be taken very seriously by the people who actually live there, and who are not going to be able to kind of deal with the other side. There's a guy who comes up a few times in the book called Malavi Shahzada Shahid, who is a Kunari cleric who has been involved in kind of local negotiations and truces with the Taliban. When I was first introduced to him in Kabul by a, a fellow journalist um, who had, you know, who, who knew knew the place really well, um, she essentially told me like he's kind of anti-American, but like you know he'll talk to you, so that can't be that anti-American. You know, I went and talked to him, and indeed he seemed to have a little bit of an anti-American flavor to him. Um, and I can't remember exactly how I wound up describing him uh, when I first introduced him, but whatever my description was, it made my Kunari friend laugh. I, I, I think I described him as um, kind of a, 
uh, well, I, whatever it was, he, he said, look, the fact that he's talking to you means that your descriptor is inaccurate. He's not by no means radical or conservative. If he was, why, how, how did this interview occur? <laughs> and yeah. He kind of says, look, I mean, it's the, it's the guys who kind of seem like they're on the fringe from the American perspective, the kind of the ones who seem uncomfortable being in the room with you. Those are probably the guys who, <laughs> you know, who are going to have a bigger say in, in what comes out of this in the end. Uh, and perhaps who we should have cultivated better relationships with and found ways to work with. So often this other side of a story uh, is the side that gets left out, left out. It's, it's, it's so often that, that one, um, one takes a kind of shortcut uh, and talks just about the, the American experience of a thing or the Western perspective of a thing and then extrapolates from that. And I, I wanted to ask you how, how much in reporting this book, like how much effort went into just tracking down Afghan, the Afghan side of things? Yeah, I mean, well, when you say the Afghan side of things, like I, I, I was, I think I was able to do an Afghan side of things. Yeah, I'm sorry, because that's obviously an oversimplification. Yeah, and so I think I was able to get a decent amount of kind of the Afghan National Army side, the Afghan government side, the Afghan interpreter side, but the side of the insurgency was very, very tricky. Um, and I think that's definitely one of the biggest weak points of the book. I, I, I hope that someone will be able to kind of tell that story more thoroughly later. But, you know, I kind of, I had to piece together what I could. I mean, I talked to a few former combatants on the enemy side, guys who had been low-level Taliban fighters about kind of why they had done it, why they had joined. And then beyond that, I mean, I, I relied very heavily on U.S. US intelligence reports, which themselves are, you know, often wrong, uh, and on, uh, on interrogation reports with kind of prominent enemy leaders. You know, there's a guy who always my white whale who I would have loved to have talked to. Um, there is a there is a, an, an Egyptian national, elderly Egyptian national named Abu Klaas sitting in an NDS prison in Kabul somewhere, you know, right now. I mean, unless he's died in prison over the past couple of years, who was a really key figure in in Kunar in the, in the 1990s and the first 10 years of American involvement there until he was captured. I mean, and that's a guy who. You know, on the American side, I, uh, what, was, what made it hard to piece the war together was so many people saw just the, they saw an increment of the war for a year, and then they never saw it again. And so I, people I found really useful were people who had a little bit of a longer view, people who had done two tours, people who had been contractors come back a few times, interpreters who had done, you know, who'd spent four years working up there successively. I mean, Abu Klaas was there from day one uh, at the founding of the insurgency in 2002 in Kunar. Um, up through his capture in December 2010 by U.S. Special Operations Forces. So, like, that's a guy who, you know, would be a gold mine for, for, for kind of the historical perspective on the patch. And what I understand from people who've talked to him in interrogation um, is that he actually, he doesn't mind talking about it. Um, he he's doesn't want to, you know, he's not going to sort of give you give you the goods on his former comrades, um, but he, uh, he, does, he doesn't mind kind of sharing the knowledge a bit. Um, so never got to talk to him. I, I hope someday I will. Probably not. It's so both frustrating and also intriguing, especially to, to, to conflict journalists or journalists that, that might feel that there are, you know, every, every great story has already been told or like the good ones are all covered or taken. Like, no, there's, there's a ton of stuff that we don't, right. we don't know, uh, these, blind, these blind areas. Um, but Boy, I'll tell you, the, um, the hardest place goes uh, above and beyond in illuminating uh, many spaces that have been completely dark uh, to me, just com you know, complete black boxes. Has, are you aware, has it been published in Russian or in, um, 
in Pashto or Dari? Has it been published? No, it, no, it hasn't. Um, it hasn't been published in any in any foreign languages. And it's actually this is like a kind of a frustrating thing that I'm dealing with this right now. Is I'll get I got I got a, a message on Instagram just before I was talking to you from a man who is a, a doctor who lives in Want Village in the Weigal Valley, and he said, "Can you send me a copy of the book?" And I don't know what to tell him. I mean, I don't know how to get a copy of the book to to uh, to Want in the Weigal Valley. Although actually, I just I have a friend who just visited there, uh, a Swiss journalist who shared some pretty incredible photos. So you know, if only if only this guy had asked me a week ago, perhaps this, this <laughs> journalist could have brought him a copy. But uh, yeah, not sure now. I, I certainly hope that it will that it will the copies will make their way. At least English copies will you know make their way to Kabul. And yeah, I mean, as far as the Russians, I mean, it was really, really interesting talking to Russians about their experience at Kunar, not necessarily Russians. I mean, some of this, actually one of the big units that fought up there was based in, in Ukraine. You know, there's, I, I wish I could have kind of included more material about the Soviet experience. I tried to weave it in where I could, but yes, yeah, some, some really interesting conversations with Soviet veterans about, about their experiences up there. One of the things that I've I found so interesting about Afghanistan after, especially after my second tour, on my first tour, we would encounter, you know, 2007, 2008, of course, we would encounter some of these Ukrainian or uh, former Soviet contractors working for uh, what we'd call Jingle Air, which is these sort of, right. you know, uh, MI8s flying in, flying in mail or flying in water, not mail, I think pallets of water and, and food. I don't, I don't think they were permitted to, to carry mail. Um, but my second deployment, we were up in the north. So we were working alongside Germans. There would also be sort of Finnish, Norwegian, uh, Swedish. I think there might have even been like Balt a, a small Baltic element up there. I think mm -hmm. Danes were up there as well. And, and so with Russia, with Great Britain, with, uh, you know, Alexander the Great, you know, it was on the Oxus River. You really do get this sense of Afghanistan as a place where it's not like the graveyard of empires. Like this is... This is how it's described, but it's much more of like a, a, a bazaar of, of empires, you know, a, <laughs> yeah. a marketplace yeah. of empires, meeting, and, and, and the Afghans are part of that too. And, you know, the, the Waigalis and, and, and these, you know, the Nuristanis. Um, and it's just, it, it, you, never, you never see that side of things. And so I really, really appreciated that. Um, I hope I'm really looking forward to, to to seeing what the response is from 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 those areas or those places, even if it's critical, just to sort of help fill those the spaces in. Yeah, I mean, there's a um, there's a unit called the the 66th uh, Separate Mechanized Brigade that was essentially the the Nangarhar and Kunar unit for several years there, kind of in the middle of things. And I know that they hold a reunion every couple of years in in Ukraine. I've seen photos of it. Um, so that's something I would I would love to one day you know attend um, if, if if I could. I kind of talk to those guys more about their experiences because uh, there's, you know, we as Americans, we have um, a perception of the Soviet experience in Afghanistan that I think is uh, a distorted one. Um, it's been distorted through, um, you know, accounts that we got in the news in the 80s, you know, accounts that U.S. intelligence was gathering and piecing together in the 80s. Um, and then it's been distorted over the past 20 years through the lens of our, the Afghans we're getting it from, right? Um, so it's very common in, in eastern Afghanistan, if you're a, you're a young officer there, to kind of hear these stories from locals about, oh, a whole Soviet division was, you know, kind of chewed up and swallowed in this, in this valley or this village, or we killed hundreds of Soviets, or, you know, all, all these helicopters were shot down here. And of course, these stories are exaggerated. There often are kernels of truth to them, though. Um, but something that you really don't get in this distortion of the Soviet experience um, 
that, that is kind of presented to us is in some ways the Soviet military went through an opposite evolution to the American military um, in, in Afghanistan. You know, we think of the Soviet military as having, got, have, having been just kind of this bumbling armored beast, right? Um, and there's truth to that. That's how it went into the country. Um, and, you know, maybe in other parts of the country, it stayed that way. But in Kunar, the Soviets learned from kind of their, their big bumbling mechanized operations early on, and they transformed into kind of a more lighter and flexible force. I mean, one of these mechanized battalions out of Jalalabad was transformed into kind of a, a nimble, Spetsnaz-like uh, air assault battalion that would, that would rove up in the mountains. Uh, and there was a GRU um, Spetsnaz battalion at Asadabad as well that has actually a very active kind of veterans community and veterans page. These guys would, you know, I've talked to some of them. I mean, they would go on kind of like long multi-day patrols that almost look, when you see photos from them, they look like more like something Macri Stog would have done in Vietnam than, than they look like our infantry platoons running around and all their body armor and everything. And they would do this kind of at altitudes and in places that the U.S. only sort of briefly touched, um, kind of at the, at the, at the height of, uh, of its influence when it really was, you know, driving everywhere it wanted to on ATVs. And then on the flip side, I mean, you essentially, you see the American military kind of start out that way to a degree, right? Like photos of soft guys from 2002 up in, up in these valleys or the 10th mountain guys even. Um, yeah, they're, they're operating in a light and flexible way. Pickup trucks, ATVs, not necessarily even body armor. But over time, as the IED threat rises, as casualties rise, and as kind of um, a willingness to put up with casualties declines, um, units become much more, uh, much less flexible. And it, the, the first, the armored Humvee, and then the MRAP are not only fielded to units, but are kind of made the one-size-fits-all solution to units. It's, it's not so much, it's not so much uh, at least in Kunar, it's not so much, oh, a company commander has MRAPs at his disposal for when he wants them. It's when you go outside the wire, you're going to be in MRAPs. Um, uh, was was kind of the the vibe in 2010 in the patch uh, anyway, and and this really as as we were mentioning before, I mean it really severely limits um, the kind of the mobility and flexibility of U.S. forces. You see their bubbles of influence shrink. So it's just interesting to me to kind of learn ab about that comparison to the Soviets, how it, they kind of evolved in this other way than we did, kind of in the other direction. You know, when I first would go to Afghanistan in 2009, I, mean, I was really, you know, you'd see all these old BTR, like motorized, you know, Soviet vehicles littering the countryside. They're just all over the place. And you think, one, you, mean, you kind of would think, oh, these things are so big and clunky. But of course, the MRAPs that were, that were in service by 2010, I went in and I crunched the numbers at one point. They're like six inches wider and a good chunk heavier than the, the BTRs that the Soviets had. And then the other thing, you know, you see these BTRs and you think it's, and not just BTRs, I mean, BMPs, tanks, all kinds of stuff that the Soviets left behind there. And you think, oh, wow, I mean, this must have been such a bloodbath for the Soviets. I mean, they, they left all this stuff just on the battlefield where it fell. And of course, the war in Afghanistan was a bloodbath for the Soviets. But I think the reality is most of those vehicles that you see kind of littering the roads and, and, and then, you know, countryside today, I mean, I, I think most of those vehicles were abandoned there, not by Soviet troops who lost them in combat, but by the, the army, the Afghan army that they left behind, who inherited all these vehicles and, and had, fought, had a very different kind of war to fight. And I think similarly, I mean, you know, when I was first visiting in 2009, 2010, it was not possible for me to imagine that American troops would abandon their Humvees and MRAPs in combat in the countryside. And indeed, American troops largely don't do that. And yet today, the highway south of Kabul is littered with up-armored Humvees uh, that have been left there by the Afghan National Army. Yeah, we've, we've really, I, I, one of the great critiques of, of what we've done there or failed to do is, is insisted on, on creating a military capable of sustaining 
itself modeled on our own and our own military, when you think about it, is, is a military of plenty and overmatching firepower at the, at the place of contact. And that's not the, at all the lived experience of the Afghan military, even assuming, let's say Afghanistan was a, a, a country like Saudi Arabia, like blessed with natural riches and capable of throwing money at a problem until it, you know, until it goes away or is destroyed. It's not, um, it, it, they're not, you know, they're not that country. So it's soldiers carrying rifles facing the Taliban carrying rifles, um, you know, assault rifles. So I think that's a, that's a great point you make. And, yeah, and you um, and you see also, I mean, by by our transfer of all kinds of equipment to the to our client army, um, you also see that client army transfer those weapons to the other side. I mean, there's like a convergence of what the Taliban looked like and what the Afghan National Army looked like um, in terms of their uniforms, the equipments that they have. Um, increasingly, night vision night vision equipment is a thing that the other side possesses in Afghanistan. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's easy to kind of, or it was 10 years ago, I think easy to kind of dismiss, oh, we should have made a more irregular looking army, made it more look like the Taliban um, instead of a mirror image of us. But uh, over time, I mean, it's all kind of blended together. Yeah, and, and it seems not to be working at the moment, but who knows, <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe they'll figure things out. I guess, that's, I guess that's what people have said for 20 years. Who knows, maybe things will figure, uh, people will figure things out. Right. Uh, one final question for you, sure. which is uh, a little bit more indulgent. Um, <laughs> I noticed uh, you mentioned, I, I know that you're a, a graduate of Princeton and uh, I've never held that against you. I noticed- <laughs> Thank you, I appreciate it. <laughs> I noticed that Princeton comes up a couple of times. Did you know that uh, these, was there a, an original Princeton connection that you saw uh, and, and then sort of uh, one thing led to another? Or, or was this just a, a terrific coincidence that there were these sort of Princeton leaders that you just sort of stumbled over or stumbled no, over? It's, it's coincidence. I mean, there's um, wow. essentially um, the, the, the two, the, the kind of the, the guys here who show up in the story are, there's Chris Cavoli, the, the 132 Infantry Battalion Commander there, who's in 2006, 2007. Uh, he, he's a Princeton graduate. He also has a, a Yale master's degree, by the way, um, uh, which I'm pretty sure I mentioned, but perhaps not. Um, uh, and so he was there uh, as the battalion commander um, in Kunar at this period, but by sheer coincidence, so was a Princeton classmate of his uh, as the Navy Provincial Reconstruction Team commander. Um, actually, a guy he had not known in undergrad, um, but this is a guy who had, you know, the way he described it to me, he kind of been inspired by Top Gun to kind of quit his like boring engineering job that he got out of college uh, and go become a fighter pilot. And the military, in its kind of infinite wisdom, uh, had wound up putting Navy, you know, nuclear engineer commanders and, and fighter pilots in charge of these provincial reconstruction teams for, you know, the, the rationing, the, the, the reasoning was the army is not sending its best because uh, the, the early provincial reconstruction teams in Afghanistan uh, tended to be commanded by sort of cast off uh, army O5s, uh, guys who didn't make it to battalion command, things like that. And it, and it obviously wasn't working. And so a solution that uh, the joint staff cooked up was, well, instead of these kind of low-end army officers, let's put our best Navy and Air Force officers in charge of these things. Um, so there's a cadre of guys who today command like carriers and things like that, you know, admirals now, um, who at one point in their lives spent a year as these kind of fish out of water, you know, running reconstruction operations in some rural province in Afghanistan. And, and one of these was this guy who just by sheer chance had been his, his infantry counterparts Princeton classmate. 
Uh, and then the other is Mark Milley, uh, who's now the uh, now the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, th there is there's sort of there was more stuff about Milley that got left on the cutting room floor. I mean, he was a um, he was the one star deputy commander for operations in our, in Regional Command East during a pretty critical period. Um, he was uh, you know he he flew into FOB Blessing in the immediate aftermath of of the Wanna battle in 2008, and then he returned as a, as a three star you know countrywide commander. But he, you know, the book is not, the book only is about that level, that kind of like division and, and core level occasionally. Um, so it just wound up not making sense to include a whole lot about General Milley. There were, there were certain points where, where he dips into the story though. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about today that I haven't asked you or just sort of in general uh, on your mind? It's been it's been interesting to see what people kind of are interested in in the book. What what different people bring up. I was um, I I won't ask you to indulge me in this, but uh, there was a a guy whose podcast I went on, a, a Ranger and Green Beret veteran recently, who um, at the end he let me kind of go wild talking about the the natural life and wildlife of of uh, of Kunar and Nuristan, which was fun because that was um, you know that's the thing. It's a thing that actually sometimes was a, a thing that I could kind of help help soldiers speak more vividly about their experiences by asking them about just the place they were in. I mean, this was something, especially with like you know infantry NCOs who are also hunters. Um, this was often a way I could kind of get them to go from after action report language to tell me what it looked like language um, was by asking. I mean, okay, what kind of weird animals did you see out there? I mean. Uh, and and they often would kind of snap right into this other mode uh, and tell you the story about the big black cat that they saw one time in the forest and uh, you know all this stuff that was just that really added to kind of the richness of the of the of the accounts. Well, now we have to. I I can't close on that because there is this <laughs> other extraordinary corner of the book which I which I'd forgotten about in thinking about, but it's critic is critical to 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 seeing the place and and feeling and also smelling the place which is this, apparently there's a rare type of cedar that grew there, but there, like one of the justifications of going into the valley was to preserve it from like over harvest or like, or a, a, an exploitative type of logging. But it was actually our going in there that ended up catalyzing a kind of ecological catastrophe that's unfolding. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I'll kind of, I'll, I'll try and summarize this in the clearest way I can, although it's a convoluted tale. Um, there's, it's a parallel to the, in, uh, you know, on, on the U.S. on the on U.S. military side and the CIA side, something you'd see often happen was uh, U.S. forces getting played into acting on behalf of the people that they thought of as their proxies, but who in fact sometimes were using them as proxies um, to, to get various things done. Um, and this is something that happened in the timber trade. Uh, you know, much of you know, we we think of Afghanistan as kind of this dry, arid country, and a lot of it is. Um, but up in Kunar and Nuristan, those two provinces are home to the, the biggest sort of surviving forest complex in the country. And it's, you know, there are kind of these evergreen oak forests on the lower slopes. And then you go up higher, higher and there are these huge, beautiful conifers. It's firs, pines, uh, spruce. But then in particular, it's this Himalayan or Deodar cedar, uh, which Kunaris call a naktar. And they're they're really big trees, and um, they've always been used, uh, you know, by people up in these valleys for for construction. There's actually there are traditions of really beautiful woodworking, uh, especially among Nuristanis. But it, it took on a different dimension in the 1980s during the jihad against the Soviets, where this cedar in particular, which is it smells good, it, it resists rot, it resists resists sort of invasion by insects. Um, it was marketed to wealthy. 
uh, wealthy Arabs in the Gulf as a way of supporting the jihad against the Soviets in Kunar was, you know, do your, do your cabinets in your, in your big mansion um, with this jihad wood. And so, you know, this, this takes off. Uh, and in particular, there's a valley called the Korangal, um, uh, which, you know, is kind of a, a central to the story. It's one of the Pesh's side valleys. It's the one where Operation Red Wings and all this stuff happen. But uh, it's, it's central to the timber trade. I mean, they have really good cedar reserves up there. And they also, I mean, they had really gone hard on uh, making money off of it rather than kind of letting it sit as a you know, resource for future generations so much. But so the Korangalis um, had grown rich off of their cedar by the time of US intervention. Uh, and what happens pretty quickly, I mean, and this happens you know, before the 2005 Red Wings episode, is that US Special Operations Forces get sucked in there as muscle by the sort of the lowland strongmen who are the next step in the trade. Basically the Korangalis sell their cedar to these lowland strongmen who then sell it to a Pakistani timber mafia on the other side of the border. But these same lowland strongmen are the guys that the United States, um, our Green Berets and CIA officers kind of come in and ally with when they, when they arrive in Kunar in 2002, uh, because these are the guys who are willing to talk to them, the guys who are willing to share intelligence, and they're the guys who already have kind of armed groups of men at their disposal that can become, that are kind of the immediate easy surrogates and auxiliaries for, for U.S. troops to use in the province. And they also, they take up official, they take up government positions. I mean, they kind of, they divvy up the, the government positions of the province immediately uh, upon, upon the creation of this, of the, of the, of the U.S.-backed government. So what happens is, is starting in 2003, these strongmen uh, start telling their American allies, the Korangalis aren't paying their taxes, things like this, presenting this kind of this commercial struggle as a struggle of, you know, law versus lawlessness. And so there, there's this incredible meeting that happens in the summer of 2003 that was actually recorded by um, a, a Kunari American named Haider Akbar, who's a teenager at the time. Uh, and he, he did a This American Life episode about it. You can actually hear this, this initial interaction occurring um, where uh, this, uh, this American Green Beret team visits uh, in the company of this you know, supposed government official who really is just kind of the lowland timber mafia representative and who has recently been roughed up by the Korangalis when he tried to kind of reset the terms of their business agreement. So he comes back to the Korangal, he brings these Green Berets with him, including the infamous, you know, Major Jim Gant is there as a captain. And uh, the Americans don't leave until uh, basically they've made it pretty clear that they're on this guy's side uh, and that what he says goes. And so what happens, you know, as a result is the Korangalis bring in the Taliban, right? Um, the, their, their business competitors have brought in their muscle, so they bring in their own muscle. Um, and before you know it, the Korangal is this arena for violent competition between these two proxies in this timber war, the Americans and the Taliban, that, that winds up exacting quite a toll in American lives. But yeah, the, the kind of this, this, the irony of this story in the end is that um, the reason these timber barons uh, were able to take advantage of the relationship in this way, because of a pair of bans that the Karzai government passed in 2002 and 2003 um, that criminalized uh, the entire timber trade. Now, everybody kept doing it, uh, including these government officials. They, they continued to profit from it. But by virtue of its being illegal and them being the enforcers, they now had this, this lever that they could use to bring the Americans in on their side um, because they're the government. But what's, what is uh, so strange about this story is that there, there really, there was, so these, these laws were put in place because um, reports had reached 
the you know kind of the the international environmental NGO community and from them to the Afghan government to Karzai's government that there was kind of unsustainable deforestation occurring uh, up up in these up in these mountains. You know, basically that the Korangalis were just tearing through the timber and it was all going to be gone if you didn't do something about it. Uh, and so this was the impetus for that for passing these laws, which in fact did not stop the harvesting of timber in any way, shape, or form. But years and years later, at the end of the American experience in, 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 the, in the Korangal, the American military hires a, uh, actually a Yale School of Forestry um, trained forester named Harry Bader to kind of tell them what's going on with all this timber. Um, and what he finds um, is that actually a lot of the kind of the studies that, that said that there was this deforestation occurring back in 2002, 2003, 2004, the results are not replicable. And when you actually use, you know, predator and satellite imagery to look at the forests, there isn't evidence of clear cutting, for instance. And that these, these communities actually, although they're making a killing, they're, they're doing it in a way that's gonna allow them to sustain their wealth. Uh, and so the only real deforestation uh, that's going on in Kunar is on the lower slopes in this kind of, this evergreen oak forest that just everybody uses for toothbrushes and firewood and all this stuff, because there's just lots of people. I mean, they're tearing through that stuff. But the, the commercially valuable timber um, up higher in the mountains that wound up being the fuel for this war, that stuff was not being clear cut. But <laughs> as a result of this whole conflict and the Taliban being drawn in, then there's this coda to the story where in 2011, as American troops are leaving the patch, the Taliban high command in Pakistan um, is kind of running low on cash because of the, you know, the, the NATO surge, um, especially in the south of the country where their opium money comes from. Um, so the Taliban High Command in Pakistan um, issues orders to its to the Taliban commanders uh, in Kunar, in where they have kind of ensconced themselves in part because uh, the Korangalis invited them in over timber, uh, issues orders to liquidate all the timber you've got control over. So in 2011, the clear cutting really does happen. And so a lot of forest really has been lost now, in part because of the decisions that were made ostensibly to protect the forest. It's such a tragedy to hear that. I remember hearing from soldiers in 2008 coming home. I remember talking to you know, officer buddies uh, who had been up in the patch um, and them saying essentially, yeah, that it was about the timber trade. Like it wasn't ideological the way that it was in some other areas, like the Taliban, like the, the villagers and I didn't believe it at the time because it sounded so ridiculous. Like I understood it was something beyond my understanding. Like that, right. that is what I comprehended. Well, like, that's kind of a key understanding. And that's, yeah. um, you know, there's, there's a Green Beret team leader early in the story who reaches that same conclusion. He, he basically, he's, he's the first Green Beret team leader at Camp Blessing out in the Pesh. And he's getting all these reports from the Korangal. You know, people are saying, oh, the enemy's up in the Korangal. And he's aware that there is this timber trade. He can see that it's playing out in complicated ways around him. And essentially he decides this, that whatever this thing is, it's none of my business and it's too complicated for me to get to the bottom of. So we're just gonna, we're not gonna mess with the Korangal um, during the time that we have on the ground here. But then the Green Beret team leader who succeeds him takes the opposite approach uh, and basically is completely drawn in by um, the way that this timber business is presented to him as, oh, look, the Korangalis and the Taliban, they're the ones who profit from the timber. And very often over the course of U.S. involvement, that was kind of the depth of the understanding that guys reached, you know, American officers who were studying the problem and all that, um, because it's what they were being told by their Afghan interlocutors who had a vested interest in it. You basically, the, the, what you'd learn was the Taliban and the Korangalis are in bed and they profit from the timber trade. 
And that would be the, the, the extent of the understanding. And that's true, but what it misses is that everybody else in the province is profiting from the timber trade too, including the partners who are telling you this distorted version of the story. Um, and, and that's the real story of timber in Kunar, um, is that it, every, everyone in the province was profiting off of it, not one side or the other. You know, that makes me think that probably, and at the time I thought this was smart, but probably the smartest thing I did as a commander was not getting dra dragged into the whole drug thing. Like mm -hmm. I remember the DEA asking me a couple of times for soldiers for operations they wanted to do against like drug runners or things of that nature. And I always, it always seemed to me like that was that was getting too complicated yeah. and, and, and doing things that the Afghans needed to sort out themselves. And I probably avoided getting sucked into some kind of weird like tribe on tribe dispute um, yeah, as a result I mean, of that. You did. I mean, um, the story, you know, you could write a book about any number of districts in Afghanistan that would be just as interesting as this, as the Petch book. And one of them would be Sangin in Northern Helmand, um, where mm. the Brits, that wound up kind of being the Brits Fallujah or the Brits Korangal. And, you know, I, I, I first went to Sangin the same summer I first went to the Petch. I kind of briefly was really interested in it, but then decided to focus on the Petch. But yeah, I mean, there's, there is a, a very much a parallel story to be told there. And in the same way that there are all these kind of complicated actors with their own motivations, I mean, the role of the DEA, the role of, uh, you know, the, the ways that it would get crosswise with the military, the way that it would kind of use certain military tribes, uh, you know, they, they would co-opt, you know, JSOC straight forces and use them. They co-opted the Australians and used the Australians because the Australians wanted to get out on more missions. And, you know, the American, American Special Operations wasn't cooperating with it. So the DEA went and used these Australian task force. That, I mean, that's quite the story and one that I think would be um, even harder to unravel than the than kind of the Kunar timber one because it's just so much larger. Well, the hardest place, the American military adrift in Afghanistan's Pesh Valley, Wesley Morgan, there is ethno-linguistics, there's environmentalism, there's foreign policy, there's military theory, there's sociology. It is a book of historical interest and importance um, there are military stories. It's not just military theory. There are great battles. It's a terrific book. Uh, one of the best books I will read this year, unquestionably. And uh, thanks for coming on and talking a little bit. We could talk for another couple hours easily, but listeners have lives too. We definitely could. And thanks so much, Adrian. It's always a pleasure to talk to you.